Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Shot Podcast. I'm Joe Dyer, and I'm here today um, with regular potter Grace Tame. G'day. Uh, and we don't have Charles Firth with us because he's on a plane on his way to Hobart where he'll be performing his latest show. And we don't have Dave Milner with us because he's weak and sick and in bed, uh, accompanied only, I'm advised, by his fluffy dog. But we have upgraded massively from Charles and Dave this week because we have with us writer and independent journalist Anthony Lowenstein joining us here in studio. Hi guys, thanks for having me. Great to be here. It's a great thrill to have Anthony with us. Now, many of you will know Anthony from his myriad writings uh, on a range of subjects, but today we're going to be focusing specifically on his writings around Israel. He leapt to fame and prominence with his book, The Israel Question, and he's just published a new book called The Palestine Laboratory, How Israel Exports the Technology of Occupation Around the World. So... You know, just um, non-controversial, walk-in-the-park kind of book that uh, that Anthony's decided to write. Life is short to be boring. Indeed. It's fair to say that your determination to speak out on the issue of Israel and Israel foreign policy does come at a cost to you. I guess it has. I was born in Melbourne in the 70s. I'm not going to give a long history, don't worry, but I was born in Melbourne in the 70s and growing up Jewish in a pretty liberal Jewish home, it's pretty normal then and I'd say also still now. The majority of Jewish homes in much of the West, although it is changing, supporting Israel is pretty expected. Yeah. I think for many Jews, Israel has replaced religion. It's become their religion. So many Jews, obviously, if you're Orthodox and religious, it's different. But if you're a liberal, secular Jew, as most and many Jews are in Australia, at least, Israel has replaced that. So to believe in Israel, to support Israel, to be mostly uncritical towards Israel. And that was how it was with me. My grandparents, most of my family were killed in the Holocaust, a pretty sadly typical Jewish story. The ones who got out in 1939 were spread around the world, Australia, Canada, the US, UK. And when they came to Australia in 39, my grandparents on both sides, most of them, in fact, were not madly pro-Israel. In fact, it was seen as very weird for the majority of Jews before the Second World War to support Israel. They were relatively comfortable in Europe. My family were in Austria and Germany. Obviously, the Holocaust changed everything Mm. for self-evident reasons. The sense of why Zionism was born in the late 1800s was fairly simple, um, which was basically, we as Jews can never be safe unless we have our own homeland. Yes, we can live amongst other societies, amongst other people in Europe or elsewhere, but there's always going to be anti-Semitism and there always has been and there always will be, and we have to create our own state. Now, within 50 years, Israel was born, which was a pretty, on one level, remarkable feat. However, the key, however, to create Israel in the late 1940s required mass ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, a remarkably similar story to virtually every other settler colonial state in the world, New Zealand, US, Australia. And there's really been very little, not just acknowledgement of that, but kind of 
not even a conversation has really much begun in Israel. The reason I mention all that is that as someone Jewish growing up, I didn't know most of that when I was five or 10 or 15 years old. But as time went on, it really struck me growing up in Melbourne that there was such open hostility and racism in the Jewish community towards Arabs and Palestinians and Muslims. Not every Jew, of course, felt that way. But in general, it was just, it was normal. It was acceptable to be racist against Palestinians. Why? Well, we're Jews. We have the right to Israel and Palestinians are the new Nazis. This is what I kept on being told. Yes, Arafat, who was the former head of the Palestinians, he was Hitler. Now, I mention all this because although it's, it's history, in some ways, a lot of Jewish people still have that view in 2023, although it's changing. And I, over time, just felt uncomfortable with that tribal nature of conversation in the Jewish community. So yes, I wrote my first book was My Israel Question you mentioned, Joe, in 2006, which caused this massive, crazy storm. On one level, unexpectedly, there were attempts to try to get the book banned. Um, There were people in Parliament condemning me. There were literally attempts by the Israel lobby to pressure Louise Adler, who was then the head of Melbourne University Publishing, to get the book pulped. There was pressure on the Melbourne University board to get the book pulped. I mean, just ridiculousness. Mm. All failed, I might add, and it became a bestseller. Thank you very much, everybody. (laughs) But I say that because what I was arguing 20 years ago was pretty uncontroversial, I thought. I was calling back then for a two-state solution. I said I was a Zionist. I support Israel's right to exist, all things I don't agree with anymore. All views that were seen as the so-called mainstream view, I think the threat was that I was Jewish that was being critical of the Israel lobby and critical of the role that they were trying to play in silencing critical voices. So as you said, my, my career and my work has taken me on lots of other issues. I have not just written about Palestine, no. Afghanistan, the drug war, spent time in lots of other places around the world, lived, uh, lived in Africa and lived in Palestine. But I keep on coming back to Palestine because the conflict is only getting worse. It does seem, I mean, it, it, it clearly is getting worse. And there is this sort of extreme denialism, as you say, that goes on to cast the Palestinians as the aggressors, as the peoples that need to be feared Mm. when they are the ones who have been displaced by the formation of the State of Israel. There's a wonderful Israeli Jewish writer called Gideon Levy, who's one of my heroes. He writes for the paper Haaretz, which is probably Israel's leading um, newspaper. And he's often written about, he's just turned 70, so a different generation to me. But the reason I mention him is he often says that Israel's the only occupying nation that wants the world to be sympathetic to the occupier. Yeah. It'd be like the Americans after 9-11 going into Iraq and Afghanistan, which I guess some Americans said, and they said, you should feel sorry for us, not the Afghans or the Iraqis. They're the ones who are being occupied. You should feel sorry for us. us. And this is exactly how it is in Israel. There's this kind of a massive amounts of self-pity about we're doing our best to manage the situation. It's not easy. All these Arabs want to kill us. And yes, there are some in the Arab world who don't like Jews in Israel. I'm not denying that. And I talk about this in the book that anti-Semitism is real. It's real and it's a threat and it's actually growing in parts of the world. And that worries me as as a human and as a Jew. I'm not denying any of that. But it seems to me undeniable that Israeli actions have a contribution to that. It doesn't justify anti-Semitism. Of course it doesn't. But it's like saying after 9-11 that there was growing amounts of anti-American sentiment. Why? Because Americans were doing horrible shit in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. It didn't justify, you know, bashing an American tourist in Venice or something. Of course it doesn't. But these things to me, there's cause and effect. And and the reason I guess Israel-Palestine is unlike many other conflicts around the world, most other conflicts that exist as horrible as 
they are, are geographically based there. So I've done reporting in South Sudan. I lived there years ago in Afghanistan, both horrible conflicts. But in general, those conflicts remain in Afghanistan or South Sudan with huge death tolls and huge suffering. Israel-Palestine, as I talk about in this book, is now exported. Mm. So what's happening in Palestine is terrible and horrible and Palestinians are suffering under occupation. But there are now the majority of countries in the world in some way have bought a form of Israeli defence equipment or repression or spyware or drones. So the occupation is now exported. And when you export repression around the world, by definition, you are becoming an in some ways, an indispensable nation to many countries. And I think there's an attempt to depoliticize that to say, oh, sure, country X wants spyware, but where's that spyware tested? It's tested yeah. first on Palestinians in Palestine. I mean, I think that was that's the real revelation from this book um, for me is just the, the scale of the defence um, industry mm. In Israel, the low, the, the native defence industry, and the way that it has been exported, and really is at the heart of so many uh, of the various conflicts and conflagrations that are going around the world at the moment. Yeah, it's it's a sort of there's a few points that I've just been thinking of while you've been talking. I mean, first of all, like con- context is everything. It's one thing to acknowledge that anti semitism is something that exists. You know that is true. I was reading a book um, recently called "Conflict Is Not Abuse." Um, and it was written by an American academic. It was sort of a precursor, I think, really to this um, buzzword that's recently entered the zeitgeist, which is cancel culture. And it references various case studies. And one of the case studies that it references is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it talks about this concept of the enemy mind um, or the siege mentality. I guess is another um, term for that concept. And it's this sort of concept being persecuted justifies the same treatment that you're being subjected to. And you could you could put uh, the Palestinians um, and the Israelis in either place in those circumstances. And I think a lot of traumatised individuals or traumatised states can often find themselves, whether whether um, consciously or unconsciously, in that siege mentality where they're being under attack or feel as though they're being under attack and therefore think they are justified in behaving the exact same way as their quote-unquote enemy um, is behaving. And that is where you get this resistance and this this vicious cycle that that really cannot be undone I mean, unless so, there is some kind of negotiation. Absolutely. And what's so remarkable, and I say this, I mean, even though I'm Jewish, although I'm secular, it's remarkable that for centuries, one of the main issues that Jews has what, has did have around the world, particularly in Europe, was that they were ghettoized. Various societies mm. put them in ghettos because that's apparently what Jews deserved course was bullshit, but that's how the various various states saw it. Fast forward to 2023, Israel is now ghettoizing itself. Mm. It's surrounded on all sides by walls that it it itself has made and built to allegedly protect them from Palestinians, from Egyptians, from African migrants, whoever it may be. So Israel is also exporting the concept of ghettoization. I mean, there's a reason, for example, I talk about this in the book, that on the US-Mexico border, a key part of the U.S. infrastructure there is Israeli. Israeli infrastructure across the entire border is massive surveillance towers, incredibly sophisticated. And why did the U.S. buy those kinds of 
technologies because it had been battle tested in Palestine across the West Bank and across the Israel-Gaza border. So the point being that as more and more Western states, and this is what I fear, this is probably why the book was written also as a warning, that I worry that as this century moves forward and we have more and more climate refugees and resource wars and all these kinds of issues, Western states are going to be faced with some pretty serious questions. And I think thus far we're failing miserably in addressing those, which is how do we respond to larger numbers of people? who are likely to come from poorer nations. We have, we have, we being the West will have choices, we being Europe, the US, Australia, etc. And what I worry about, because it's already happening, is that many of these states, rather than accepting, will build higher walls. Mm. They'll use more surveillance technology. I mean, this is where this is going. And Israeli repressive tech has been and will continue to be a key part of that infrastructure. I mean, it... I think it was it was striking um, and revelatory in your book um, when you talked about Israel is now a leader in so many of the technological and political areas which are at the very heart of the 21st century and that was surveillance technology, um, drone technology, and we've heard all the way, the, the way about that's now just such a critical part of all of contemporary um, and modern warfare, and also ethno-nationalism and the way that has grown across the Western world and particularly in Europe. Um, but, you know, there's a whole lot of that um, which was part behind the, the growth of people like Trump as well. So here is a, a country which initially had been sort of promoting itself as the beacon of democracy in an otherwise turbulent and ultimately anti-democratic area in the Middle East and yet now is at the absolute forefront of what you would argue, could argue and I, you do argue, I think, is, mm. is sort of anti-democratic strategies for enforcing um, and bolstering themselves and their security. And partnering and encouraging elements of the global far right. So it's pretty crazy Mm. in going to far right rallies in various countries around the world and seeing the Israeli flag being waved. I'm talking about groups that are traditionally neo-Nazis, that are anti-Semites, who are waving the Israeli flag. Why are they doing that? They don't like Jews. They're doing it because they see an affinity with Israel's ethno-nationalism. They themselves want to create this sort of Christian ethno-nationalist nightmare. I mean, they, of course, see it as utopia. And Israel is that model. Israel is the model. And what's sad is that Israel's not distancing itself from those groups. In fact, there was a, you know, Richard Spencer, the infamous alt-right leader who got, got notoriety the early Trump era five or so years ago, he said, I'm a white Zionist. Yeah. Now, that term is so vital. He doesn't like Jews, but his vision, if you can call it that, is as a Christian ethno-state within the US. And Israel is admired for that reason because Israel doesn't give a fuck. Israel says, we want to have a Jewish supremacist state. You don't like it? Fuck off. We don't care. And the world, because of fears, because of anti-Semitism, because of not being you know, worried about being accused of anti-Semitism, I think because of the Holocaust, for a range of reasons in general, gives Israel complete impunity. You were saying earlier about, you know, um, things being exported, um, you know, like the, that I think is just a key point to make about um, 
you know, everything that occurs or, or not everything necessarily, but a lot of things that are, that occur or are developed in the context of conflict and war um, <clears throat> are, are exported. You know, if we look back at the First World War or, um, you know, and I, I, well, I'm just I'm just for the, I guess for the purposes of this, um, you know, podcast, because we could really go back in time um, and look at, you know, human beings and, and you know, um, the trends of quote unquote raping and pillaging mm. and how we've just become more sophisticated sophisticated at those things, not that those things are particularly sophisticated, of course, but yeah. we've just become, um, you know, as we've evolved, um, again, um, that's a, a relative term there, but um, as we've evolved, we've become more and more sophisticated um, uh, and uh, I guess uh, covert um, or cosmetically, um, we've become better at cosmetically hiding those things. Um, <clears throat> but but a lot of the things um, that happen in the context of conflict um, are exported. So you say, within the last hundred years or so, um, you know, and especially in the, the, the second world war, um, you know, and and with with the like the the advent of the first computer um, that was that was um, built um, by um, the the British forces, um, you know, to, to like um, and we, we talked about this recently on on a podcast when we were talking about AI. Um, it was built to um, decrypt um, mm-hmm. the messages from the Germans. Like a lot of the things that were happening um, during that time um, were exported and copied by various forces because, um, you know, and especially um, through the development of biochemical warfare and and tech, everyone was copying everybody else. And actually... um, the tech that the Israelis um, have have developed was actually so. There was the. Have you heard of the 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 software Promise mm-hmm. that 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 program? Yeah, that was that was developed by the US. Um, it was developed by a um, an organization um, that that started in the US in 1973. It was set up at first as a not for profit. Um, it was called the Institute of um, law and um social research um and they were they were they were really just at first contracted by um the the u.s federal government to develop like case management software and eventually um as they were um that they were they were found in two federal courts um uh to have been um well the software was found to have been pirated um by by the u.s government um and it was it was the US government that 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 sold it um to the Israelis. So yeah. <laughs> I think it's just interesting. Just yes. the origins, the origins of it. Um, because it's fine, it's it's hard to find out that information. Um, but I've read I've read entire case texts which are um which are available online. Those aren't buried anywhere. Um, but it is just it's just interesting because we hear different pieces of information that, that are sort of scattered around the web and stuff like that. But um, yeah, all that tech, you know, it's everyone's doing the same thing at the same time, you know, like it's oh the Chinese were doing this and oh the Soviets were doing this, but everyone was really doing it at the same time. Like, you know, we we there's this sort of like monopolization of evil and monopolization of trauma. And, um, you know, of course the, the Germans were held up as being the most evil in, um, world war two. And certainly there was this scientific precision, um, of, of, of what was being, what was being done then. And I'm certainly not taking away from that, but, 
Um, a lot of the the Nazi scientists, of course, were, were captured during that time um, by by the US and hired and by the US. And, well, indeed, and the US they were hired was, yeah. by the US totally, and because that, they were so good at their job. Because they were so good at their jobs, and they were captured, and they were they were taken, and there a lot of their work was continued mm. because there was this the justification, of course, for it was that you know that they were had already mastered mind control, and then of yeah. course we saw after that, um, you know, all these these um, ads were being proliferated through through propagandist techniques, um, you know, um, that, that that the communists were going to take over the world and mind control and all sort of things like that, and behind the scenes, of course, when you know. Um, when um, uh, you know Joseph Joseph McCarthy came along and was was outwardly accusing um, the communists of um, all sorts of things, it's just quite interesting mm. because everyone was sort of doing the same thing. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot of the really meticulous research that you'd done in the book too, Anthony, was understanding that there that a lot of these new technologies that we're now hearing so much about and that have proliferated so widely across all sorts of different wars did originate in Israel and that there was in fact a concerted policy decision made by the Israeli government to invest in warfare as an industry and to make Israel an economic powerhouse in that way. And for a variety of reasons, and perhaps you can talk a little bit about Mm. these, but firstly, there was that sense that we need to defend ourselves and so we're going to use these, develop these technologies and use them against the Palestinians. But also that they became a geopolitical and diplomatic tool in the way they would engage with the world to try and render themselves invincible to a whole range of different, often despotic nations. And it was quite extraordinary to me the way that Israel would actually sell these technologies to anyone on all comers even countries that you would perceive to to potentially be hostile to Israel. Even anti-Semitic regimes. Yeah, regimes, for example, Argentina decades ago that was housing Nazi war criminals. Yeah. and they I mean, you can't imagine, get much yeah. more debased than that. I mean, you basically have Nazis who had been killing Jews and Israel's working with the Argentinian government. It was insane. I mean, you're right, Joe, that as I say in the book and – um, the idea, I guess, partly of the book was to give people on one level a potted history but to make it an accessible history, which to say that, yes, as um, Grace rightly says, there are obviously a lot of regimes that are exporting horrible tools and technologies. The US, for example, remains the world's biggest arms dealer, 40% of the world's mm. weapons. Israel's the 10th biggest arms dealer. But UK's the second. Yeah, exactly. UK, France, Russia, these are all states doing horrible things. So none of that is to defend or to ignore any of that. But the difference to me is that a few things. Israel has a ready-made occupied Palestinian population in its backyard for now 56 years and counting. It's the longest occupation in modern times, which gives Israel, as you say, Joe, a ready-made population to do a range of things, to test spyware, to test weapons, to test intelligence gathering, to test so-called smart walls. And a lot of that technology ends up being exported elsewhere. And often when Israel and the companies do that, 
They do claim, I was just reading literally this week in the Jerusalem Post, a very right-wing newspaper saying that, Israel, we should be proud, this is how they framed it, we should be proud that so much of the world wants our stuff. Battle-tested was the phrase that, exactly, that battle kept tested. coming up. Now, the US did battle-testing of weapons in Iraq and Afghanistan. The, the the West is now literally do battle-testing of weapons in Ukraine. I mean, they openly say that in the Russian aggression against Ukraine. So, yes, Israel's not the only country doing that. The difference is that Israel claims to be a moral nation, claims to be a light unto the nations, claims to be a an ethical Jewish state. And I think for many of us Jews, and there's growing numbers of Jews and just people in general, but Jews particularly, there's a sense that is, is this our legacy? Is this the legacy of Jewish people after the Second World War when it was the most industrial level genocide in history that less than you know, 75 years later, the the I would argue a key legacy of Jewish and Israeli history now is the longest occupation in modern times and selling and developing the most egregious weapons to the worst regimes on the planet. Now, is that our legacy? When I say our, I mean I say that as a secular non-religious Jew, but is that our legacy? And the short answer is that absolutely is our legacy. This is where it's at. Now, there are, which is what I'm happy about, in the US there is, and it's happening here a bit too, there's kind of a massive civil war going on in the Jewish community, a non-violent civil war, where in general older Jews are much more supportive of Israel, in general younger Jews are much more critical. It's not quite as clean as that, but in general. And the younger Jews are challenging their elders and saying, we're not going to support endless occupation and violence and literally Jewish pogroms against Palestinians because we're Jewish. Like this is insane. Like, you know, this is not what we want to be as multicultural Jews who live in a democracy like the US or elsewhere. And what I think you're finding is growing pressure on the Democratic. I mean, the Republicans are a lost cause on, you could argue, virtually everything. Every cause, yeah. So if Trump wins again next year or someone like him. Unlikely, I'd say, but. Well, it could be dissent or, or, or a Republican. I don't think. I think Trump's going to win the nomination and then they'll lose even though Biden is past his prime. But that's another whole yes, conversation absolutely. that we can have and he may uh, absolutely on a different be right. podcast. Or Biden drops dead tomorrow and then we've got yeah, Kamala yeah. Harris. But look, who the hell knows? Or yeah. someone else. But the point, I guess, is that in some ways, though, when Trump was president, he was actually much more honest about Israel-Palestine. He basically said, I don't really like Palestinians. I love Israel. Yeah. Now, that, you think it's that different with Biden? You think it's that different now that Biden is president on this issue? It's no different. It's no different. The rhetoric yeah. is a bit different. My point in saying that is that until there is, I guess, a massive shift, increasing pressure, boycott, sanctions, like the model against apartheid South Africa is the model that for decades and decades most of the world was happy to accept what was happening there. In fact, Israel was the, one of its mm. key friends until the end. There's a big section in the book there about is. that. Because I think they saw not just a defence relationship but an ideological alignment. They both yeah. saw themselves as fighting barbarism. South Mm. Africa obviously saw it against blacks. Israel saw it against Palestinians. But they saw an ideological alignment. And I have lots of quotes in the book of leaders in both countries saying, you inspire us. We Mm. want to be just like you. Now, South African apartheid ended in 94, and I'm not idealising that country now. You could argue there's, well, I argue there is undeniable economic apartheid still existing in that country. It's It's a mess. But apartheid ended officially in 1994. In Israel, there is proud apartheid. I mean, they're expanding it. And I think this is the problem that Israel has in the long term. In the short to medium term, much of the world has shown they're going to accept it and they and they have no problem with it. I mean, that's the reality of there's no international pressure. But can you in the 21st century in the long run, long run being 50 years or more, I guess, be a proudly 
apartheid state. Now, I guess listeners can make their own assessment. Probably on this podcast they say, hell no. But this is a challenge about is if more and more nations follow an ethno-nationalist path, India, as you mentioned, well, you didn't mention India, but India no, is... No, well, that, India, I thought, was really yeah. interesting and, and using Kashmir as uh, the way that the Indian government, the Modi government, mm-hmm. is looking to Palestine in Absolutely, the way that they're treating Kashmir and literally trying to transplant yes. those same sorts of strategies, which is really scary, I thought, and telling. Well, it's um, scary because, I mean, India, as listeners I'm sure are aware, is now the biggest country in the world. It's got the biggest population. It's now the biggest self-described democracy, although I would question that. It is a massively good friend now, apparently, of Australia in the US and the West. Why? Because it's not China. And what does that practically mean? It means that Israel and India are now unbelievably close. And I'm not saying what Modi in India is doing is because of Israel. It's not. It's more nuanced than that. But as you rightly say, Indian officials are openly praising what Israel's doing in the West Bank. We want to do something similar here to bring in many more Hindus into the Muslim majority areas in Kashmir. So if India, as the world's biggest nation, the world's biggest democracy, accelerating its move towards a really scary Hindu fundamentalist reality, you have senior Indian officials openly talking about pogroms against Muslims. There are pogroms happening now against Muslims. I think the world, the world, the I don't use the word civilised world, but the world that is committed to human rights, whatever, how we want to describe that, has to make a choice because there's almost there's a fork in the road. You can go down the Indian path, which is, or the Israel path, which is benefiting one group over another, Jews or Hindus or whoever it may be, or Christians or Muslims, or you can choose a more egalitarian human rights approach. And I fear mm. that many, many nations look to India and Israel as the model, not all, of course, but many and I think that's a challenge that many of us had to say, stop. Yeah. Do not go down this path because it's damn scary. I mean, you do say, as you were just alluding to there, and you say it in the book too, that there is now this sort of generational shift amongst um, the Jewish peoples and the diaspora saying that's not the kind of country we want. But that is happening at the same time as the government itself um, has become more right-wing um, with the re-election Far of Netanyahu right. and the parties with which he's had to mm-hmm. go into coalition. I mean, mm-hmm. the, some of those ministers, the finance minister, yep. the security minister, are yep. people who are saying the quiet bits out loud. Absolutely. Openly ethnic cleansing. I mean, they, they don't deny it. Like, this is literally what they want against Palestinians. So it's it's... It's a challenge, isn't it? Um, and is this, do you think, part of the reason and the, the sort of the growing unease and disquiet amongst the diaspora, part of the reason that they seem to be so vigilant in policing what is allowed to be said and the conversations that are allowed to be had on this issue, at least in a public forum? And, you know, you talk in the book as well about the way that the social media mm. companies, the big tech companies, have been pressured to censor the sorts of images and stories that are allowed to be told. Censored not just Palestinians but, I mean, essentially non-Western people. I mean, there's lots of examples in the world where in the last five years, for example, Facebook itself, Facebook did, an, did a report which they released which found that they were themselves complicit in genocide in Myanmar. Now, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg wasn't personally killing anyone, but he was, him, his website, his platform were allowing not just inflammatory, but genocidal comments on Facebook in Myanmar. In Ethiopia, there's been a quasi-genocide in the last years. In Palestine, obviously, there's mass violence against Palestinians. The reason all this is relevant is that when people talk about 
not everyone, but some people talk about this wonderful utopia of AI in years to come and all this new technology. Sure, I'm not a Luddite. I mean, I embrace technology like anyone else, better or worse. But the problem is what input is being put into these systems? What is what is being prioritised? And in, say, in Palestine, you do see t- example after example of Facebook, Twitter, TikTok and others deplatforming or deprioritising or shadow banning critical Palestinian voices. Go on, Grace. But this is what we've sort of touched on in the last couple of episodes briefly about AI and, and well, encryption software and the very initial context in which it was, I guess, birthed. And again, um, going back to the, the um, you know, even the first computer, but even before that, I mean, what really is encryption or decryption and code and like what are ciphers? And I mean, I mean, the Greeks were using um, those cylindrical ciphers in the context of war. And um, Julius Caesar had a um, had a cipher text that was just, you know, shifting a few letters um, to the side. I mean, these these um, uh, forms of encryption um, were, you know, munitions technologies. Um, really, um, and they always sort of have been. And so it's sort of a bit obtuse, um, especially, I don't know if you've seen recently, um, there was last year, I think, there were about 700, um, you know, big tech experts who sort of warned against um, AI and, and the dangers of it. And then again, um, on the 30th of um, last month, um, like 350 of them um, signed a quote-unquote open letter, which was just one sentence long. Um, it was a bit of a hand-wringing, um, you know, almost, uh, you know, sci-fi um, log line that was comparing the dangers of AI to those of um, nuclear war and pandemics. Um, you know, of course, um, again, like AI is is a munitions technology. Um, and so it's it's... Like that's sort of the missing piece, isn't it? And that um, even when we we saw um, the, I guess the shift from um, um, these sort of forms of all these algorithms, these these that's what they are, these these coded um, forms of of uh, communication, uh, moving from very rudimentary um, uh, analog. Um, uh, messaging systems to digital, um, online, um, in real time, um, uh, you know, modes, um, the, there was sort of like this, um, very kind of, uh, well, there was this awareness that they could be, be used, um, for all, all kinds of nefarious purposes, but also there was this possibility to install guardrails in there. Um, but it's the, the pressure um, from uh, protection agencies, whether it's child protection or other any other kind of, um, I guess if you want to call it, um, uh, you know, community, um, the pressure um, from law enforcement um, on the positive side of things um, versus the, the pressure from, um, you know, like other forces um, it's it's not evenly weighted, um, and so that's the, no. that's the trouble. <laughs> not at all, and I'm, what's made worse by the fact, and this ties into a lot of the work I've done in the last decade around disaster capitalism. I've yeah. done a book and a film on yeah. that where essentially the argument was, and 
went to lots of crazy places around the world to show this, that in some ways the corporation has become way more powerful than the state. Yeah. Not because I idealise the state or if the state does something, therefore inherently it's right or correct. Of course, that's not the case. But in lots of these big tech companies, social media has been around now for close to 20 years, not all of them, but most of them, there's barely been any regulation. No. Even now, yeah. there's barely been any regulation. Again, I'm not idealising regulation, but there basically has not been much regulation in the US particularly. Some other countries have tried around the edges to do things, including Australia, I know that. So, and the problem I think also is, and I say this is directed at my own wonderful journalism profession, which mostly is broken, sadly, is that there's so much celebratory reporting, if you call it that, it's basically press release bullshit, about all this stuff. This is how most of the, most of journalists Journalism, journalism these days is mostly a sanctioned press release. And this is the case from the Canberra Press Gallery to tech reporting. Obviously, there are good journos doing good work. I'm not criticising everyone. No, no. But that is generally what most of journalism has become. It's a sanctioned press release. And that is a fucking problem. One of the um, things that you did say in the book, and I think this has been a conversation that has been around some of these big tech companies as well, is that they have these sort of natural monopolies because they were there first. And mm. no one can really imagine breaking them up. And yet that is exactly what happened at the turn of the 20th century with some of the um, monopolies that grew. And the idea that you can't imagine doing something until it's done and you cite, um, I can't remember her last name, but she wrote um, uh, Shoshana's Surveillance Capitalism, Zuboff, um, Mm. when she talks about actually child labour, no one could imagine child labour not being used until it wasn't. And so there are this sort of sense of nihilistic kind of futility it can be our greatest mm. enemy in on some of these issues. And even now people say, and I say this in the book, that, for example, spyware is ubiquitous, that virtually yeah. no country wants yeah. to give up spyware and yet until relatively recently there was a perception that everyone's going to have nuclear weapons. Now I'm not idealising the regulations around that, but now there's a, there's, a, there's a framework around which the world views nukes. Some countries ignore them, hello Israel, but in general there is a, there's guardrails. And with spyware, spyware for listeners who don't know what that means, is basically a tool, mostly Israeli, that allows a police um, force or some other authority, government authority, military intelligence, to gain access to everything on your phone. Like technolo- everything. And literally the ubiquity of it was just shocking. And the technology is so good now, A, you wouldn't even know it's on your phone, A, whether you have an Android or an iPhone. And secondly, that the technology is so good now that you can switch your phone off and they can still control your camera and your microphone. So essentially it can be used as a weapon against you. And this is not in the book, but I've done some separate reporting on this in the last while for Declassified Australia, this website mm. that I've founded with Peter Very Cronow. Good. Thank you. And Celebrite, which is an Israeli company, probably no one's heard of it. It's a quite a well-known phone hacking tool that they sell. It's used by police in Australia. It's used by countless government departments. It's used by Services Australia against welfare recipients. I mean, this is an Israeli surveillance tool that is exported around the world, used by repressive regimes, Russia, China, Belarus and others, and used here in many other countries. And at the moment, which is why I keep on talking about it, there's not really many questions around, is there any guardrails on this? No is the short answer. The police says, just trust us. Now, I'm not saying, can there be examples where there's a need to get access to someone's phone for legitimate investigation? Of course there can be. I'm not saying there's never legitimate reasons to find out details about someone's phone or communication, there can be legitimate reasons for doing that. If people are involved in uh, extreme crime or child pornography, I'm not saying there's never justification for it. What I'm saying is that at the moment there's no guardrails. 
So these always governed departments in Australia, for my research, in the last 12 years, there's been at least 130 contracts between this Israeli company, Selbright, and virtually every Australian governed department, ATO, Services Australia, um, ICAC, everyone. We don't really know how they're using it. We don't know when they're using it. We don't know against whom they're using it. This seems to me a problem. Mm. It's a major problem. (laughs) And it is that interesting thing, as you say, that things that previously didn't exist and we got by perfectly well without, suddenly now they exist, is that they're, you know, indispensable, it seems. And they can be regulated. I mean, I said they should be banned, but you could regulate them. The governments don't want to do that yet. Yeah, and and also we've got you know when you when you think about um, you know like government uh, influence against these um, the campaigns um, you know for uh, regulation and things like that because there are campaigns that are run um, from various sectors for for regulation. Um, and sometimes governments want to support those, but but even their ability often to stand up to big tech, um, you know, you look at the, the their influence versus the influence of big tech, um, you know, they, they only have, the governments only have national influence because um, you've got, you've got, you know, st- sort of state level, national level control versus transnational, international market reach and market control. Don't pay tax from, on Australia from, mostly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, all, and actually. Exactly. All, so yes, the big tech companies are located outside of Australia. Yeah. And also yeah. you're talking about, you're talking about often, um, you know, uh, players, players who have been in the game for, for a really, really long time and that they're, they're in unelected positions and, you and know. they're all about money. I mean, that's one of the they're things. They're all that- about money. Then mm. the, the, the overlap between big tech and capitalism, I mean, if you look at it as a Venn diagram, it's like a circle. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It really look, is. Look, I think there's so much which is fascinating in this book, which is also about the way that different technologies are now deployed in different ways that you hadn't imagined. One of the things that I found sort of really sad and depressing was the way that drone technology is replacing actual boats in waters around, um, you know, the policing of refugees attempting to make their way to safety and sanctuary. And of course, if you don't have people in a boat, but you have a drone, then when the refugees get into trouble, the chances of them being rescued um, is, is much smaller. Not that many boats want to rescue refugees these days. We've just seen to such sad cost recently. But there's so many really fascinating um, nuggets of related information in this book, The Palestine Laboratory, and I really recommend to our listeners that you go out and buy it. One of the saddest little things I'll just say in closing was the map, actually, that sits inside um, next to the introduction I'm talking about really the impracticality in many ways of a two-state solution now in um, in this conflict because of the ubiquity of the illegal settlements. Um, I think just perhaps to close, Anthony, I might ask you to reflect. We all support or supported the two-state solution as really what was um, promoted as the only viable solution to the eternal war in the Middle East. But you look at that map... Um, and the way that there really is no contiguous right. Palestine. Um, Which was always the Israeli point. Indeed. Um, I know you've talked about how these days you don't support a two-state mm. solution. Um, is that because of the impracticality or is it more about or these days more about as well that entrenches dispossession and there needs to be 
yeah. a more calibrated response. Look, my vision, so to speak, and obviously ultimately that has to be decided by Israelis and Palestinians. Mm. It's not going to be decided by a random Jewish person in Sydney, although obviously the Jewish diaspora and the Palestinian diaspora I think should have maybe not a say but are going to be part of that conversation. Mm. Well, to me the only real solution is, a, is one state. It's one homogenous state where Jews live there, Palestinians live there, with your Christian, Muslim, Jewish, atheist, whatever you are, there needs to be a... So not a Jewish state. Not a Jewish state. Democratic. A democratic state. And Israel is not a democratic state if you're not Jewish. Mm. And, I mean, my issue with a Jewish state is not dissimilar to uh, my problems around a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim state. Any state that... Uh, prioritises one group over another, by definition, is not a democracy. I mean, that's sort of so obvious to say that, but somehow Israel gets away with claiming they're a democracy. But a one-state solution, and I think there would need to be, as there was in South Africa and after 1994, like a truth and reconciliation event, which can take years, which there needs to be truth-telling, frankly. There needs to be truth-telling about what happened when Israel was created in 1948. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be prosecutions if that is decided to be required. I'm not a utopian. I don't believe it. suddenly you become a one-state solution next week and everyone gets on and hugs. I'm not saying that. For a while, communities will mostly live fairly separately. I think there's a lot of distrust on both sides, which makes sense. If you go there, you see there's a lot of... Um, I mean, there's a one-state solution now, but it's an apartheid state. Yeah, There is a one-state so-called solution, and, of course, the advocates of Israel want that to continue indefinitely. But to me, a one-state solution, which actually has growing amounts of Palestinian support, not much Israeli Jewish support, but I sort of compare it to white South Africans. You know, people, white South Africans didn't wake up one day and go, you know what, this apartheid's pretty crap, better end it. No, no, no. The only reason it ended, of course, there were some white South Africans who opposed it, was because international pressure. That's the only reason that ended. People were told, you have a choice, right? You have to end this this horrible apartheid or we're going to make you a pariah state forever. That's the only way that that conflict, that situation ended. And that's what has to happen here. Mm. So are we a long way from that? Yes. But is there a growing move towards acknowledging the situation? Just finally, in the last two years, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, every Israeli human rights group, every Palestinian human rights group have all put out separate reports saying what's happening here is apartheid. Now, Palestinians have known that for decades, but that's a significant rhetorical shift, that there's an acknowledgement. People are more aware of that. So the question now is, what's the world going to do about that? Do we accept an apartheid state in the middle of the Middle East, which is given uncritical support by the West, including Australia? And by the way, it doesn't make much of a difference here whether there's a liberal or Labour Prime Minister. I mean, Albanese is rhetorically not as bad on this as Morrison, but politically speaking and as a policy, there ain't much difference. Sadly. No, well, you could say that about many things, actually. We could, about a glorious <laughs> Labor government, yes. Um, but on that note, uh, as I say, I do encourage you to zip out and buy this book. Um, it provokes a lot of thinking and hopefully will provoke a lot of conversations. So I'd like to thank you, Anthony, for being our very first grown-up guest on oh, I feel the so grown up. podcast. Well, thank I mean, you. we had Ronnie and we have Patrick, but... You feel like we have had my pets on here before. That's wow. true. Well, I can't, I can't really compete with that, but I feel grown up ish. So thank <laughs> you guys. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And we will be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.